Hello, and welcome to Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast from Fresh Energy. Fresh Energy is a Minnesota nonprofit working to speed our state's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Joe Olson. I'm the Communications and Engagement Director here at Fresh Energy and also your host for today. I'm excited to be joined by Fresh Energy's Executive Director, Michael Noble, and our entire public affairs team, which consists of the lead director, Justin Fay, Senior Associate of Public Affairs, Anna Johnson, and our Coalition Communications and Policy Associate, say that five times fast, Eric Fowler. Welcome, you guys. Hey. Hello. Hey. Thanks for having us. So great. Good to be here. Well, we are here today because the 2022 session of the Minnesota legislature is nearly upon us, and there's already just a ton to talk about. Minnesota's got a split legislature, a budget surplus, bonding and budget proposals are already on the table, and more. And today we're going to talk about all of that. Our plan is to take the next 45 minutes or so of this podcast to dig a little deeper into our expectations and hopes for session. You know, typically I'd be inclined to start off the discussion to talk about some of our big successes during the 2021 session, but it was such a huge year for clean energy and climate. I really couldn't do it justice. It was one of the most impactful years since 2007. So instead, I'm going to put a link in the podcast details for listeners to a uh, recap blog post of what happened at 2021 session last year. So you guys can click on that and catch up there. And I think we're just going to dive right into the questions about this year. So before we start talking about the 2022 session here in Minnesota, let's step back and talk about what's happening at the federal level. Thanks to the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, there are already significant funds heading to Minnesota for things like electric vehicles, public transit, weatherization assistance, transmission and grid, coal plant community transition, and more. Michael, do you want to kick us off with an update on these funds? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. You know, you know everybody knows that the, the, the lion's share of the climate investments are in the next bill coming up, the bipartisan or the um, Build Back Better legislation. But there was a lot of climate and energy provisions in the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill as well. And obviously, the big difference is the infrastructure bill has become law signed by the governor, uh, signed by the president, and the money is on its way to the states. So we did a fantastic uh, event down in Rochester. Both Eric and Justin did this, and I think there's a link, link to it on our website, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and just to click off a few of the top line highlights, there'll be about $68 million for electric vehicle infrastructure in Minnesota. That'll presumably be mostly super fast charging and build out the EV infrastructure we already have, which is, I think, at least a B minus in Minnesota, and maybe we'll get to A minus after uh, this next wave of investment. There's a $818 million for public transit, and there is a, seem to be a large agreement across the uh, party lines that um, transit can be a compromise area if we focus on bus rapid transit. Uh, light rail is uh, quite controversial, but bus rapid transit seems to have support from both political parties. So $818 million for transit is awesome. Uh, nationally, there's uh, $3.5 billion nationwide for one of my favorites, the Weatherization Assistance Program, helping uh, 
families with limited resources and limited incomes um, uh, weatherize their homes and reduce their uh, reliance on fossil fuels and get more comfortable and safer uh, in their homes. And there's another $10 billion for upgrading the transmission system and the electric grid uh, nationwide. Another uh, $750 million nationally uh, to help communities that are dependent on coal, coal power, coal fire power plants, help them transition to the future. And that's a wonderful complement to investments that Minnesota legislature has made at the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development. They now have an Office of Energy Transition. Uh, so think about communities like uh, Becker, Minnesota, or communities like uh, um, Oak Park Heights uh, that are uh, dependent on coal or communities like Grand Rapids. And now there's uh, investment for making a transition to the future. So lots of highlights uh, to hi uh, talk about. And um, we're gonna link right here in the uh, show notes uh, to the uh, blog post that we did uh, kind of running down all our favorite uh, clean energy, climate, uh, bipartisan investments that uh, came up in the infrastructure bill that passed uh, toward the end of 2021. So we wanna obviously work uh, very, very uh, thoughtfully and very aggressively to see to it that our state government maximizes these funds and our, our cities and our towns and our counties uh, get access to these federal funds. We wanna leave uh, no stone unturned to uh, benefit everybody in Minnesota who can um, participate in these use of these one-time federal dollars for climate resilience and climate infrastructure. I'll just uh, add a little note about that timing. I think uh, I got used to kind of this really rapid pace uh, that money was getting distributed from the American Rescue Plan, uh, right? And that was really the requirements were to spend down that money so quickly. So it came down from the feds and it went out the door. Um, and this pace is going to be a little bit slower. This is not emergency spending so much as long-term investments. So we don't yet know when the money will all be fully available for Minnesota. Um, it may be as late as this summer by the time the federal agencies are, are actually providing guidance to the state, um, which could then in turn trigger another summer of special sessions, um, which are unfortunately beginning to feel normal uh, at this point. Um, but but that that is going to play out a little bit more slowly than the money that we just saw come down um, from the American Rescue Plan. Thank you, Eric, and, and welcome to your first Fresh Energy podcast. Thank you for being here. And That's thanks, Michael, Michael thanks. too. Yeah, you both are kind of the, a dream team on that answer. Um, but now I want to talk about the other big federal elephant in the room, the Build Back Better Act. We have yet to see in what form the Build Back Better Act will come to fruition at all. So Justin and Eric, can you talk about what the latest and greatest news is on that front? Well, uh, Joe, maybe just a little bit of background and history to start, um, you know, as folks may probably are familiar, the uh, Biden administration's agenda coming into the year was that, you know, kind of the agenda that he ran on and developed uh, and, and you know, announced upon taking office uh, really uh, was centered in two pieces of legislation um, that were 
very closely connected and it intended to be complementary. Um, and one of them was the bipartisan infrastructure bill that Michael and Eric just talked about. And the second part was called the Build Back Better Act. Um, and that uh, includes a much broader set of funding uh, that uh, uh, including but not limited to climate investments. Um, but unlike the bipartisan infrastructure bill, it's been really, really bogged down in congressional negotiations uh, for a number of months now, um, with a lot, a lot of focus on uh, one senator in particular, uh, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. And, uh, you know, there's been a few sort of, it's a little bit like Lucy with the football, where there'll be little news stories about how it feels like we're getting close, they're getting close. Uh, there's a deal between the president and Senator Manchin, and then all of a sudden, oh, nope, something fell apart. And uh, the simple reality, uh, and I, the best way that I think I can sum it up is that in terms of where the bill is right now and what's going to happen next, nobody knows nothing about nothing, same as it ever was. And, uh, you know, I, I remain optimistic that they'll get something done. Um, and the, you know, latest sort of, uh, inside the DC Beltway buzz is that they'll try to break that bill up and maybe do it in pieces. So like I, the climate provisions in one bill and some item, other items elsewhere, but we don't really know what's gonna happen next. Yeah, and I guess I'll add that thinking about what is in this bill uh, in terms of climate uh, and energy, um, there's a decent amount of overlap with some of the investments in the, the bipartisan infrastructure package, but the main takeaway is as proposed, because again, this hasn't passed, um, Build Back Better is bigger. Every single investment it makes is is much bigger. Um than the infrastructure package. And one of the things that we have been doing at Fresh Energy is really advocating to keep climate, uh, keep bold climate investments at the core of this package. We led a sign-on letter asking um, Minnesota's congressional delegation to support uh, the boldest climate investments possible. And, and you know, even though this remains uncertain, um, we are going to continue to advocate and apply pressure for the Build Back Better Act um, at all levels. Um, and that includes continuing our collaboration uh, and support of Minnesota Senators Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar um, and our, you know, and our state leaders who are um, speaking up in support as well, such as Governor Tim Walls. Um, we really are going to be there at every step doing what we can to ensure that clean energy and climate um, get a piece of the pie. So, you know, one thing I want to just chime in on this is that uh, as the president and the Congress were struggling with these two major pieces of legislation, there was growing pressure from all across the president's constituencies that voting rights is uh, needing his attention. And, you know, historically, voting rights has been one of the most bipartisan areas of agreement. You know, everybody agrees that everybody gets to vote. But United States Senator Amy Klobuchar, who is one of the point people on voting rights and actually the point person on voting rights in the United States Senate, her, her quip now is some people don't want some people to vote. And so sadly, voting rights has fallen into the bucket of a partisan debate rather than we're all in this together. 
and uh, they they dialed back their expectations uh, to find Republican votes. They found no Republican votes. They discussed amending the filibuster so that there could be exception or an exemption that perhaps people who are opposed to voting rights might be required to stand and oppose it until they were exhausted all their arguments and all their time, and then they could vote it through. But uh, this isn't chapter isn't over, but nothing I can imagine could be more important to climate policy and climate protection and fresh energy's broad agenda is that everybody gets to vote. If they wanna vote, they get to vote and we shouldn't have states throwing up impediments, making it more difficult to vote. It seems logical and fair that we should be working on making it easier and more straightforward to vote. So, you know, we are just bending over backwards nonpartisan in everything we do, but a lot of this is arising from, um, you know, the big perpetual uh, lie that the last election was stolen, uh, that the, the past president continues to infect the national dialogue with this idea that there's something wrong with our election system when every objective independent analysis said it was the most free and fair election in American history. It's just that many, 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 many people voted. Uh, 81 million people voted for one guy and you know, 75 million people voted for the other guy, which is an incredible turnout in voting. And more voting is better for democracy. That's objectively true. So I hope that uh, people who, who have their top issue as climate and climate protection and energy, that they will also be in communication with their United States Senator Smith and their United States Senator Klobuchar to uh, thank them for continuing to push hard on making sure everybody in America gets to vote. Thank you, Michael. Now I'm gonna reel us back to Minnesota. I know that we're anticipating that infused to all policy debates this year will be the hot, but, hot button issue of Minnesota's $7.7 billion budget surplus and how it should be spent. On top of that, it's a bonding year. Michael, would you talk a little bit about some of those larger themes that will be in play in 2022 and how you anticipate they'll affect progress on clean energy and climate legislation or all legislation for that matter? Well, maybe just I, I'll limit myself to the very, very top line. This is an election year. Everybody's on the ballot. The governor's on the ballot. Every senator's on the ballot. Every member's on the House side every member of the House of Representatives on the ballot. So a lot of stuff that's gonna happen is people trying to get advantage uh, this way or that way and help themselves and hurt the other guy. That's just unfortunate nature of a political year. Having said that, you know, we already mentioned that you know, we were wildly successful in 2021. Well, I would say as, sex, as successful as we possibly could have been in 2021, working with uh, a divided legislature, the only one in the 50 states that's divided between the two political parties, by the way. And we intend to continue our effort to be successful. You know, the top line big picture story is that it is a bonding year, which means borrow money to invest for the long term. The governor is gonna have a very, very big, bold proposal and the House and Senate will have proposals as well. The 800 pound gorilla in the legislative session is the budget surplus. I mean, I've been watching the legislature for a long time. I certainly don't remember any time where we had 7.7 .7 
billion dollars more revenue than we have expenses. So obviously some people are gonna say, uh, give all the money back to the voters, it's their money. And some people are gonna say, we need to use this special one-time windfall for investments that have been delayed and deferred and ignored and avoided, and now's the time to invest. So those two points of view are the basic architecture of the political debate and uh, Fresh Energy is gonna wade right into it. So that's the top line, but I'll let, uh, I'll let Anna uh, give you a little bit more granularity here on what we're seeing from the House and the Senate and from the, uh, from the governor as well. Sure. Thanks, Michael. I think you you laid it all out really well. Um, it's exciting to see some big proposals from uh, the governor and the House Climate Action Caucus so far with some really meaningful and ambitious climate investments. So we'll be advocating for those funds to be spent um, sw smartly and well on the things that matter most. Um, another thing I'll just touch on is just that it's there are a lot of retirements that have already been announced. So a lot of legislators um, kind of, uh, I don't want to say throwing in the towel because often they go on to do many other uh, different, better, different, <laughs> interesting things. Uh, so several members have already said they won't be running again. Uh, and the maps are being redrawn and that'll, that'll come out in February. So every 10 years after the census results come in, we redraw the maps um, to reflect the, how the demographics have shif shifted. So we can expect even more uh, retirement announcements uh, around February or, or later after we get those results. And I won't speculate about how, you know, having a final opportunity to work as a legislator might impact each individual member. But just the fact that I will say that it probably will make a difference for each individual knowing that um, this is kind of their last opportunity to serve. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, legacies are super important for, for folks as they move on to the next phase. So I think it'd be fun to pull back the curtain a little bit and talk about Fresh Energy's process for identifying legislative and policy goals. So Justin, I know over your three years at Fresh Energy, you've been working to make sure that all staff are involved in that process and that it's creative too. So can you give our listeners some insight into how we narrow down what Fresh Energy is going to go for each year? Well, Joe, first, let me say as a, as a professional lobbyist, I don't ever want the curtain getting pulled back. I like the curtain <laughs> right where it is. Um, no, I, I'm kidding. Uh, the, yeah, you know, I think uh, it's interesting. Fresh Energy is in an interesting sort of uh, position in that we've been, uh, you know, growing steadily now for, for um, going on three decades. And uh, Michael can, uh, we'll talk sometimes about his memories of starting at Fresh Energy when it was a two-person shop. Uh, and today we're somewhere in the range of 30 staff. And as we've grown and our uh, have, uh, scope of work has broadened and diversified, um, the process of putting together and, and sort of being uh, deliberate and intentional and coordinated about what we work on has become more and more important. And so that's something that, that our public affairs team takes very, very seriously, um, that we need to be able to kind of foster both uh, inclusive collaboration with our staff so that we're uh, generating good ideas um, and helping to ground and then also helping to ground those ideas in both the kind of political landscape of the time and what we think is likely to be possible or achievable um, or might set up 
uh, a narrative that we'll want to sort of pursue later when it becomes X issue becomes more possible and more achievable. Um, and then also to coordinate across our staff, make sure that uh, you know all of our programs are getting uh, you know airtime, so to speak, um, that uh, we're advancing the kind of totality of our uh, program expertise and work and mission, uh, and that we don't get crosswise, so that we don't you know unintentionally find out find a situation where our buildings uh, team is trying to do something that our uh, folks working on electric vehicles think is a really bad idea. Um, and so that's a really, really big part, maybe the biggest part from a time perspective uh, of the public affairs work is simply keeping all of that straight and on the tracks. Um, and so uh, we actually have formalized a process for how we assemble our agenda. Uh, we, um, our policy staff actually go through essentially an application process uh, where they write issue briefs on uh, issues that they wanna propose uh, fresh energy work on in the coming session. And then the public affairs team uh, goes through a series of meetings to review those proposals and discuss them and uh, make some determinations about what's ready, what maybe needs a little bit more work. If there's questions that we have that need to be, you know, for things that need to be refined or fleshed out. Uh, and then ultimately uh, bring back a, a slate of, uh, of, of proposals. Um, and when I say a slate, it's, you know, we don't, uh, we don't do a formal, it's not like a big reveal or something where the, uh, you know, the, the trumpets player and out comes the fresh energy agenda, but it's uh, more of an internal uh, uh, sort of understanding of uh, what the focus uh, priorities for the public affairs team are gonna be uh, in a given year. Yeah, and well said, Justin. And I, something I really appreciate about our policy staff is the ideas they they come to us with are super well informed. Um, they're real technical experts. They spend a lot of time working on implementation of policies and working uh, at the PUC and in, in, in just the technical details of the clean energy transition. So um, they're bringing a lot of expertise to the policy ideas and the policy agenda that we create. Uh, so after we have dozens of kind of unique ideas from uh, our staff, we, we, yeah, we winnow it down and, and move forward with a list and, and put some things on the back burner for uh, to work on in the interim or, or for the following session. Um, I'll also say that the legislature does have its own ideas. Uh, they have a lot of ideas. They, I think they set records for number of bill introductions every year. So uh, more and more ideas all the time. Uh, so we also, as a public affairs team, are responsive to what the legislators care about and how they want to advance clean energy in, in their own way. So uh, we provide technical support. We can help connect them with advocates and spokespeople and um, work with individuals uh, just on, on the things that care, they care about and are meaningful to them. And close, close circuit to any legislators listening to this, uh, please don't have too many ideas this year. <laughs> We're tired. Well, I'm curious. I'm wondering if uh, something for us to revisit in 2023 is maybe we do need a big reveal with trumpets and a marching band. You know, what if that helps us tackle some of the big issues? Just consider it, Justin. We do have a couple of fresh energy staff that are in bands. So this isn't, this is achievable. I'm going to put it on my list. All right. 
So now we know how the sausage is made and how we set some legislative goals for the year internally. Uh, let's dig into some of the goals that we know are on the table already. And let's start with building codes. Michael, can you kick us off uh, talking about building codes and, and where we are currently this year? You know, uh, the M Minnesota Energy Code for Buildings uh, has been something Fresh Energy has worked on since actually before we were incorporated in 1992. We were a longtime building code engaged party. And the top level information is that the commercial energy code for commercial buildings is usually quite collegial and um, steadily moves along apace, getting better and better. And the residential energy code for houses is a dogfight with the home builders and uh, you know, if you gain an inch, you happy for the victory. The legislature does not like to get involved in building codes necessarily, but for the last two or three years, there's been um, commercial energy code legislative proposals uh, uh, co-sponsored by uh, the two chairs of the energy committee in the House and the Senate. And uh, I, I'll leave it to my uh, colleague, uh, Justin, to give you the blow by blow. But my simple question is this, if all of society, every aspect of human enterprise is gonna be carbon free or net zero or non-emitting by 2050, why are we building carbon heavy dependent buildings in 2022? Are we gonna just retrofit them all? So that's the simple question that Fresh Energy asks is when do we get to start building all our commercial buildings without any carbon footprint? When do we get that? Well, that is the million dollar question, Michael. And um, at, least, uh, at least in legislation, folks are trying to answer that, uh, that question. Um, so in uh, 2021, the, the, uh, the bill that Michael referenced that uh, was bipartisan, uh, the House Democrat energy chair and the uh, Senate Republican energy chair uh, were, the, were the lead authors, uh, would have put Minnesota's specifically the commercial energy code on track uh, to reach net zero for new construction no later than 2036. Um, that's a, that would be uh, at least a regionally significant achievement and I think would move, move the needle nationally uh, for particularly a cold weather state like Minnesota to set that, that goal uh, not just as a, a, a you know something that that we're going to have incentives for or something, but as actually the you know, binding law of the land that that's what the code is going to uh, be able to accomplish over time. Um, so it's a really really big deal, and Fresh Energy uh, uh, has uh, been working on this policy for a number of years. Um, I should also acknowledge uh, the Department of Labor and Industry uh, uh, at the state level and the, the Walls administration. Um, that has gotten behind this effort, um, uh, starting with a, a, a extensive stakeholder process that the administration convened in 2020. Um, the last meeting, which wrapped up like just maybe a few days before uh, uh, everything in the state shut down for uh, the, the pandemic. But uh, we've kept the, the progress going through all of that and um, uh, were able to have legislation that the uh, agency uh, led passed the, the Minnesota House last year. Uh, and we did get a bill introduced, but it wasn't, was not acted on in the Minnesota Senate. Um, 
as we've been developing this uh, with, with a, a broad coalition over the years, uh, I really need to just sort of uh, uh, highlight and recognize uh, the wonderful coalition of cities in Minnesota that are grappling with these issues. Um, that, you know, the energy code is adopted and, 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 and re-updated at the state level as a state level decision. Um, but cities, uh, many of whom have climate action plans and are increasingly concerned about uh, their, uh, you know, buildings happening in their jurisdiction for the reasons that Michael enumerated, um, are really driving the, uh, really the driving force and the momentum behind this legislation. And uh, we're going to be continuing to work on this in 2022, um, both the legislation that we worked on uh, in 2021 and uh, continuing to explore uh, other models and mechanisms uh, specifically for cities uh, to have more flexibility uh, to uh, drive the creation of better buildings uh, in their communities. Thank you, Justin. And while we're talking about buildings anyway, I'm hoping we can also share some details about the exciting new legislation we are helping put together about electric panel upgrades. Eric, do you wanna take this one? Yeah, absolutely. This is um, this is an exciting new idea that we are working on here at Fresh Energy. Um, like Michael said, you know, it is it is critical to reduce carbon from uh, buildings. We're we're making headway in other sectors, um, right? You can see the you can see the graph if you look this up. Um, carbon emissions from electricity going down. We've made. Um, headway on transportation in various ways, but actually our building emissions are still going in the wrong direction. Um, and electrification of those buildings uh, is is one of the key, you know, that that's how we get rid of the carbon from our buildings. We, we have to um, make sure that we are converting from, for example, uh, I have in my basement right now, a gas water heater that I am very much looking forward to replacing. And when the, well, I'm not looking that much forward to it, you know, to have to pay for it and all that, but um, I'm, I'm excited to replace it with a, a heat pump, um, super efficient electric water heater. And there's a long checklist. If you have to replace your stove, um, some folks still have gas dryers Um you start to hit a wall where you do not have the electrical capacity in your home to do all of the things that previously you were doing with a combination of electricity and fossil fuels, right? So we need more electrical capacity. And what, what we are proposing um, to, to clear that path is establishing a pilot grant program to support Minnesotans who need to upgrade beyond a conventional 100 amp panel in the first place. Um, and, and we're thinking about this as applying both uh, um, uh, single family homes as well as multifamily units. Um, this has benefits beyond just the, you know, the, the building itself. There's also can you uh, can you charge an electric vehicle? Does your does your electric panel have the capacity to charge your electric vehicle as you're electrifying? You know, not only your building, um, but the rest of your life. And so this is uh, this is an exciting opportunity to um, speed up that uh, residential 
um, electrification transition. And it's been great to work with, uh, particularly um, our colleague, Mari Ojeda, has been um, helping to lead on this. And it's been a big uh, collaboration. Um, like we heard about earlier, you know, during in this process that we have, we want to make sure that our teams are collaborating and not siloed or not uh, kind of separated. So this uh, this bill is a collaboration between energy access and equity team and our energy transition team. And uh, we'll have more updates as we keep this, this bill moving forward. Yeah, I think this is an exciting one and um, really not difficult to imagine uh, why it's necessary. I live in a house that was built in 1907 not unlike most of the block the houses on my block, I assume. And if I in my attic where I live, which is a little chilly, and I sometimes have to use space heaters, even though I know that's not the most efficient uh, source of energy. If I have like a space heater and uh, a blow dryer plugged at the, at the same time, I blow a fuse. Uh, so I, I can't imagine what adding a, an induction stove plus a, an electric vehicle plus a hot water heater that is that are all electric would do to my home. And uh, so, yeah excited about this one. And, and I think there's, I imagine a, a big need for electric panel upgrades across the state. Well, if there's a list, put me on it because I need one too. Surprise, surprise. All right, let's move on to the Future Fuels Act. It was introduced in 2021. And I know that Governor Walls has identified it as a priority for his administration. And there's interest at the legislature too. Anna, what should people know about the Future Fuels Act and what it is and how fresh energy is involved? That's a great question, Joe. The, well, the transportation sector is the highest emitting single sector for greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there's a lot of progress being made in, in transit and electric vehicles, but the a low carbon fuel standard or the Future Fuels Act is a policy to help accelerate decarbonization of the transportation sector. And the way that it works is it's a, a credit and uh, trading um, scheme to incentivize lower greenhouse gas intensive transportation fuels, uh, such, a, such as electricity for electric vehicles. Uh, Fresh Energy has been a continuing member of a broad coalition of stakeholders supporting this policy. And uh, Governor Walls and the legislature have both expressed interest in the policy. Uh, the Future Fuels Act uh, was introduced and authored by Representative Lippert in the House last year and Senator Senjum in the Senate. And Governor Walls has been leading stakeholder meetings to get input from all sorts of uh, different entities about what they think a, a Future Fuels Act or a low carbon fuel standard uh, would look like in, in its best form. Um, the What people really should know and what Fresh Energy is focused on is that the devil is very much in the details of this policy. So uh, the the way it works is it, it relies on um, the carbon intensity of a fuel to um, to create the different credits for for greenhouse gases gases and carbon intensity means uh, carbon accounting. And there are lots of different methodologies and ways you can do carbon accounting. 
uh, different things to incorporate and things that you can omit or include um, that will get to greenhouse gas emissions either faster or slower and will also incorporate things like soil and water health or not. So Fresh Energy has been very much involved in the development of this policy and uh, will continue to be working on it in both the, at both the legislature and um, with the Walls administration. So I just might chime in here that this was a, a huge priority of the uh, Minnesota Department of Transportation's Sustainable Transportation Advisory Council that I served on for two years. And, uh, the, you know, just so people have the big, big picture, this is really going to accelerate the transition of cars all running on, you know, dead dinosaur bones to cars running on electrons from the sun and the wind. That's what this is primarily about, is um, uh, accelerating that inevitable momentum as fast as we can. But the politically tricky thing is we want agriculture and farmers and uh, rural people and ethanol interests and, and biodiesel interests. We want them to be on the side of the future rather than on the side of the dinosaur bones. And that requires some long, hard strategic conversations between different constituencies. And Governor Walls is very, very well positioned to um, mediate, moderate, orchestrate, balance uh, these concerns. But just remember the big, big, big picture is out with the old, the oil industry, and in with the new, the electric industry for running our transportation economy. Thanks, Michael. And thanks, Anna. Um, so since we're kind of already on the subject, I want to talk about electric mobility. And even though Fresh Energy and a bunch of other of our nonprofit partners, and in fact, all Minnesotans had a really high profile win last year when Minnesota became an official clean cars state, that was really just the beginning. Justin, can you fill us in a bit on the multifaceted approach that you're taking across agencies and the legislature on electric transportation? Absolutely. Um, and this really is, uh, uh, I, I, like, I like the word multifaceted, uh, really, I think describes our work in this area well. And there's um, a lot of threads that run through this, uh, this particular subject area that are complementary and interwoven and um, kind of in order that it makes sense for policies to happen that has to be sort of knit together. And that's really why the accomplishment of Clean Cars Minnesota was such a big deal, because that's that really lays the groundwork for uh, for this transition to clean electric transportation that uh, is at the heart of uh, our strategy to, to clean up the emissions from the sector. Um, so we uh, are, uh, we do have our site set on kind of a next, a next step, uh, and that's mapping a path to zero emissions for medium and heavy duty vehicles as well. Um, so Clean Cars Minnesota was specific to light duty uh, cars and trucks, uh, which is, which is, which is a, it, for good reason, that's by far the largest source of emissions from ground transportation. Uh, but we do have to uh, start a conversation about how we're going to uh, uh, reduce emission and eventually eliminate emissions from um, the other sectors. And those, you know, what tend to be long haul, medium and heavy duty vehicles are gonna be harder um, and more challenging. Uh, and that's the challenge that we're, we're, we're starting to embark on now. Um, we're also having conversations with the uh, Minnesota Department of Transportation and, and other uh, uh, 
public decision makers around fleet electrification. Um, so that uh, at the both state and local level, uh, government fleets are uh, both independently a significant uh, generator of uh, vehicle miles traveled and carbon emissions. Um, they also uh, have a significant impact on the price of particular types of vehicles. Um, uh, and uh, the more that we can sort of think about and help fleet managers be successful at transitioning their fleets uh, from conventional fossil fuel powered vehicles to clean electric alternatives, um, that's gonna have ripple effects throughout our economy. Save taxpayers money, save local governments money and um, increase the availability and lower the price of electric vehicles for all of us. Um, uh, you know, fresh energy uh, uh, is really, really fortunate uh, to have had a wonderful colleague, uh, Anjali Baines, uh, working on our team for the last couple of years. She's actually transitioned to a new role uh, in our in our organization, um, and so she's kind of doing two jobs for us today, uh, serving as our lead director of energy access and equity, and uh, continuing to uh, support uh, all of us on the public affairs team and and. Uh, elsewhere in fresh energy as our you know, resident uh, uh, electric vehicle expert. Um, and so that's included uh, participation along with Michael in something called the Sustainable Transportation Advisory Committee. Uh, it's convened by the Minnesota Department of Transportation and is really taking a wholesale look uh, at uh, transportation issues throughout the, throughout the state and how we get where we need to go. Um, but I really wanted to just uh, acknowledge uh, Anjali's uh, contributions in particular as she sort of uh, eventually hands off this work to uh, uh, what will be a new hire at Fresh Energy uh, 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 here in the, in the coming weeks. So we'll be uh, excited to announce. I might chime back in again and just say that uh, this work by the Sustainable Transportation Advisory Council was, it was co-chaired by uh, the commissioner, um, Margaret Anderson Kelleher, who's surprise announcement, uh, recent announcement, she's gonna become the director of public works for the city of Minneapolis. And our, one of our favorite uh, utility presidents, uh, president of XL Energy Minnesota and the Dakotas, uh, Chris Clark. And while there was a huge, huge, huge focus, like one whole division of the advisory council was on electrify everything we can. You know, how do we electrify light duty vehicles, medium duty vehicles? And what about long haul trucking? Should we put trans transition transmission power lines along the highways in order to have high-speed charging for 18-wheelers. We, we really went into electrify everything we can, but there was also a very important constituency uh, led by close friends and allies of Fresh Energy to ask the hard question, how do we reduce the amount of driving? Like, wait a minute, our neighborhoods are overrun by cars. These cars are 6,000 pounds. You get out on the street with a stroller, you might get killed in the crosswalk. Uh, how do we make our neighborhoods more friendly for people walking, for disabled people in wheelchairs, for people on bicycles, for people who don't own a car. People don't want a car. People are like, I'm not gonna own a damn car. We have to have choices for people to bike and walk and ride public transportation. And I wanna applaud and honor Margaret Anderson Kelleher, the commissioner of transportation, that she totally gets that. And I hope that in her new leadership role for the city of Minneapolis, she'll be able to rally the community around biking and walking and transit because she won't be responsible for, uh, you know, the new uh, highway between uh, Rochester and uh, Nobles County that won't be in her portfolio anymore. 
Thank you, Michael. Um, so now a question for all of you, anything as we near the end of the podcast that you'd like to add about the 2022 session that we should be looking ahead to anything that we didn't already cover in today's discussion? Michael, you just finished talking, but you are on a roll. So do you want to kick us off here? Well, you know, just a kind of a summary view is that, uh, you know, all of human enterprise has to be carbon free. We have about 25 years or 30, 25 years to get there. We got to get halfway there in the next six or eight years. Uh, what, what Fresh Energy's donors and members expect from us is ambition and um, eyes on the prize and um, doing everything we can to uh, have an equitable, just society that's prosperous and carbon free. So, you know, that's a commercial for Fresh Energy, but, you know, we have to make progress no matter what public officials are in charge. And this team of leaders that we have is uh, a team of leaders that we made very, very meaningful progress with in 2021. And um, the folks on this call, uh, Justin and Eric and Anna and me, we're gonna roll up our sleeves with the entire Fresh Energy Policy staff and make uh, meaningful progress in 2022 as well. Well. And if I can just maybe build on that briefly, I think, um, you know, Michael mentioned that we had a, a lot number of accomplishments in 2021. And I really think that demonstrates that divided control government can move the needle on climate. And so that excuse doesn't exist anymore. Um, yes, uh, uh, both being an advocate and being a legislator in a split control, uh, divided control, you know, situation is, is challenging. Um, but, uh, you know, we collectively with partners and utilities and, uh, grassroots advocates and, uh, elected officials and the administration delivered the most impactful session in a decade in 20, uh, in 2021. And there is absolutely no reason it can't happen again. And in fact, it has to become the new normal, um, that we get folks from diverse constituencies working together and, uh, accomplishing results. And uh, the session we just had uh, simply proves that it is possible. Yeah, and I, I guess I can go next. I think um, I, I've lived in the Midwest my whole life, so maybe I'm biased, but I, I really do think that um, these wins as a Northern a cold climate state um, here in the Midwest uh, with divided government, um, you know, in a, in a region with a lot of purple state politics um, are some of the reasons why these wins and the progress and doing this work in Minnesota really matters. Um, the Midwest leads the country in emissions, um, but we also have high ambitions. And I think we, uh, you know, we, we are going to keep trying to lead here from the, from the Midwest by keeping the momentum going in Minnesota. Yeah. And one of the things I heard in the discu discussion around the most recent conference of the parties in Glasgow is uh, I heard someone put it in terms of the number of months that we have. Um, so basically, to get to the president's pledge of 52% carbon by 
greenhouse gas reductions by 2030, we have about 95 months um, or nine years, or if you think in terms of bienniums like this team does, about four and a half bienniums. Um, so we've got a lot of work to do and not, not a lot of time. Um, and we also know from the IPCC that every single incremental amount of greenhouse gas reductions matters and makes a difference. So uh, we'll just be working hard to make sure we can achieve every single reduction we can in Minnesota. Well, thank you all. This has been a really wonderful conversation today. And I think that's a wrap. Um, we've given our listeners some insight into what's coming up with the legislative session this year and what it will mean for clean energy and climate. And although we have not resolved the big issue of will we have a marching band or not, I think we can just let this conversation be done for the day. So thank you all. We'll see you next time. Thanks for having us. Hey, glad to be part of this. This is dynamite. Thanks, everyone. Yo. All right, folks listening, you can stay up to date on Fresh Energy's work via our blog at fresh-energy.org or follow us on social media. And in the meantime, thank you for listening and subscribing to our podcast. Don't forget that you can support Fresh Energy's work by making a donation today. Visit our website at fresh-energy.org and click donate in the upper right corner. And if you're free next Thursday, February 3rd at noon, register and join Fresh Energy and Energy News Network for a virtual panel discussions with journalists about what equity in climate and energy journalism should look like and what steps news organizations can take to move in that direction. And we've got a really awesome panel, including a reporter from Grist, which I'm very excited about. Save your virtual seat today uh, by clicking on the events tab on our website and registering. And we hope to see you there. Thank you all for listening.